Tales of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. This is Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Today featuring a special anthology episode, Mad Science, with your host, Lester Mayhew. Science. Mankind's effort to bring a small light of understanding and meaning to the swirling darkness that surrounds us. But mankind's ambitious steps into the unknown sometimes probe the unknowable. The pursuit of knowledge can come at a terrible cost and lead to hideous results. Join us for four tales by an author who well understood the wonder and the terror of science and the frailty of the human mind. Tonight, we bring you H.P. Lovecraft's Beyond the Wall of Sleep, The Electric Executioner, Winged Death, and From Beyond. But first, a word from our sponsor. Mmm, a cool, refreshing glass of H2O. That's the scientific formula for water. But before you drink it, do you know what's in your water? The water coming out of your tap could easily be crawling with organisms and germs, creatures so small that they're invisible to the naked eye. You and your family could be drinking cryptosporidium, rotifers, and even Neglaria fowleri. These little monsters can be devastating to your children's health, causing serious illness and even death. But there's a simple solution at hand. A Revigator! This in-home water cooler is the only brand with a tank lined with radium, the miraculous metal scientifically proven to kill germs. Fill your family's glasses with the clean, health-giving water they deserve. Buy a Revigator! Four out of five scientists surveyed drink irradiated water in their own homes. Order a Revigator today. I have frequently wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasionally titanic significance of dreams, and of the obscure world to which they belong. Join me now for the story of one man who dreamed, and the doctor who tried to understand him. It's the first act of our mad scientific experiment, H.P. Lovecraft's Beyond the Wall of Sleep. There, Enoch. Best stay back. Joe's in a rage. Meaner than a black bear with a toothache when he got drinking him. Damn you, Enoch. I kill you. Easy there, Joe. No need. I give my hands on you. Ready, boys? Get him. Don't kill it. The thing that shines and speaks. Ain't nothing shining, Joe. Come on now. 
We, we, we ain't messing now, Joe. Oh! I'll jump in the air and burn my way through anything which stops me. Uh, ah! Joe, uh, stop it. Uh, That's your sleeve. Uh, Let him go. Uh, uh, help. Uh, help. Thank you, officer, for bringing him to the hospital. We'll, we'll keep him safe. It's not him I'm worried about. Yes, yes. Oh, of course, uh, we'll be sure he won't be able to harm anyone else. You didn't seem all that dangerous. Struck me as a rather submissive simpleton. Yeah? You should have seen the man he beat to death with his bare hands. Send another to the hospital. We found him days later, caked in blood, hiding out in a tree. Do we know the correct spelling of his name, officer? Uh, Slater? Slater? I see it both ways, yeah. Took us a while to sort that out. Slater's the victim. Slater's the perp. They're all related to each other up there. None of them can read or write. Of course. I don't suppose we know his age either. Let's say 40. Don't underestimate this one. There's something weird about him. We'll take it from here. Uh, Thank you again, officer. Yeah, no problem, Dr. Brainerd. And, uh, Dr... Talbot. Edmund Talbot. Yeah. Good luck cracking a nutcase like that. Do you remember anything else, Joe? Well, he, he were all wet and bloody. He weren't moving at all. And what about you? Well, I, I don't know how he got there, but he, well, he, he were the right mess. And there were blood on my hands and my feet and my shirt and my dungarees. <laughs> yes, so you said. Any idea how that blood got there, Joe? Oh, no, sir, but I, I heard people... Uh, shouting and figured I'd best make her the woods. Uh, I suppose I'd done something. Do you know how long you were in the woods? Until the policemen came? Yeah. Them men came and said, You better come with us, Joe Slater. So I did. Do you know why they wanted you to come with them? They come where death is. Sure. Joe, I... Can I go home now? Dr. Talbot, that that should be enough for now. I think we can write a recommendation for the courts. Mr. Harper? Yes, sir. Would you please find some accommodations for Mr. Slater? Let's put him on the E-ward just to be safe. Come on, you. Well, what do you think, Dr. Talbot? An interesting case, really. The low level of cognitive... I'll stop you right there. Don't try to impress me. It's not interesting. The case, like the man himself, is common in every way. Brain damage caused by alcohol poisoning and, of course, congenital moral insanity. Yes, but... The man's incompetent to stand trial and should be committed indefinitely in the interest of public safety. Uh, Countersign here, and we'll send the paperwork on to the prosecutor's office. Excellent. I'll be home early tonight. <laughs> That'll please the missus. Yes, but Mr. Slater, he's been institutionalized? Indefinitely? The man's a murderer. He'll be lucky to spend his days with us instead of heading to the electric chair. But there's something unusual about him. There's something unusual about all of them, Dr. Talbot. That's what makes them insane. Ah, Dr. Talbot. You're in early again. Shh. Observation. But why do you watch him sleeping? Sleep affords us glimpses into a sphere of mental existence no less important than physical life. 
yet separated from that life by an all but impassable barrier. When man is lost to terrestrial consciousness, he is sojourning in another and uncorporeal life of far different nature from the one we know. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Oh, yes, Nurse Hunt. And that's where Mr. Slater is now. Perhaps this less material life is our truer life, and our waking life is the secondary or merely virtual phenomenon. You think so? I'm sure you've noticed Mr. Slater's expression when he's awake. Vacant, dull-eyed, slack-jawed. Sure. That's not unusual with imbeciles and morons. Yes, but I've noted that as he wakes, he shows subtle changes in his eyes and lips. Now look here. Oh yes, I see what you mean. He looks brighter. Oh, he's waking up. The edifice of light towering with Cyclopean grandeur, seeking me out through the dissonant cord. Joe, can you hear me? Now fetch Mr. Harper. Don't you see it blazing and shaking with laughter? It mocks me. Joe, you're dreaming. Uh, what do you see? Uh, Mr. Harper! But not with impunity, for I shall kill it. Revenge above all else. What's going on? Hold him down. I shall soar through abysses of emptiness, burning every obstacle that stands in my... Hey. What are you grabbing me for? It's all right, Mr. Harper. Joe, do you know what happened there? You didn't quite seem like yourself. No. You were saying things. Do you remember what you were saying? Uh-uh. Something about an edifice of light? No, there was a, a big, big cavern with a kind of light come through the roof and the walls and the floor and the loud, queer music way off yonder. And what was it? Uh, weren't nothing I know of. Now and again, I've spout off queer like but I don't reckon I know why. Come in. Dr. Talbot sits it. I, I understand you've been uh, spending rather a lot of time with our Catskill murderer. Joe Slater. I have been observing him, yes. Observing? Not, not treating? I don't know what's wrong with him, sir. This is a man who's never read a book nor heard so much as a fairy tale, and yet he awakes from dreams spouting these extraordinary images. Mm -hmm. How can the stultified imagination of a backwoods degenerate conjure up sights whose very possession argues a lurking spark of genius? <laughs> genius? The man is pitiably inferior in mentality and language alike. But the visions themselves could only be conceived by a superior, even exceptional brain. Oh, that's nonsense. You haven't heard him in his delirium. I assure you, we've all heard him. Well, then forgive me, sir, but you haven't listened. More and more, I'm inclined to believe that inside the pitiful personality who cringes in that cell lies this disordered nucleus of something beyond our comprehension. Dr. Talbot. In dreams, Slater seems to be some kind of important person checked only by a strange, ethereal nemesis which had once wronged him and which dreams Slater craves to avenge. Yes, yes, fascinating. But I fear you're allowing yourself to become too attached to this patient. I can assure you that over the years, such attachment between patients and doctors has led to some unfortunate outcomes. I understand, but Dr. You're Brain's... young, Talbot, and a hard worker. I appreciate that. 
but you're overworking yourself, and in the long run, that won't serve you or your patients. I'm formally recommending you for two weeks' vacation. So, I said, if he's like this now, imagine what he must have been like before the lobotomy. <laughs> What's that? I'll go see. Who's there? It's all right, Harper. It's me. Dr. Talbot. Here, let me give you a hand with your equipment. Thank you. Dr. Talbot? I thought you were on vacation. I haven't left just yet. It's awfully late to be making rounds. I'm here to see Slater. How is he? Oh. What? He's deteriorating. He's pallid and weak, and his fits are more frequent and more extreme. We've had to restrain him. I had to use the chains. Poor man. There's no time to lose. Harper, help me take this down to his cell, won't you? What is all this, Doc? Looks like something out of popular mechanics. Yes, it's a diagnostic tool of my own devising. I built it when I was at university. I theorized that human thought consists basically of atomic or molecular motion, convertible into ether waves of radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. My device is able to transmit the unique electrical signals generated by the brain during sleep from one party to another. Now this headset here transmits, and this one receives, essentially allowing one to hear a patient's dreams. So it's kind of a dream radio. Well, yes. Sort of. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Does Dr. Brainerd know about all this? Not entirely. Perhaps we could keep it that way? What good will it do? I'm sure Slater's dreams are the foundation of his troubles. They're abnormal. Somehow they possess a vividness that overwhelms his waking mind. He's a simple man, yet in his dreams he sees things he doesn't understand and cannot interpret. Now somehow Joe Slater, the dreamer, experiences reality completely inaccessible to conscious Joe Slater. And I mean to find out how. Oh, he really is a sweet man. Stupid as a stone, of course, but when he's not raving about his dreams, he's one of my favorites. Still, he's a handful when he's all worked up. Let's affix this headset now while he's docile. Uh, good. That belt goes under the jaw. Right. And turn the crank to tighten it. Look, his eyes are moving under the lids. Yes. Now time for me to put the receiver on. Mr. Harper, would you please activate that lever on Mr. Slater's headset? So, will you hear his dreams or see them? With any luck, I'll live them. Does that sound like a good idea to you? No. Now I activate the receiver. The fire is luminous mockeries. No! Come on now. No! Joe! You let her go. Help! Get, get off! Joe, calm down. You shall not impede my ethereal life. Ain't no one doing that. Joe, this won't hurt. Get I sent him. Thank God. Are you all right? Yes. I think so. A dream radio, eh? Sir, I... Dubious homemade equipment, after-hours experiments, unestablished therapeutic protocols, and all this after our last conversation. Sir... Mr. Slater is dying. 
If you were paying attention, you'd have noticed all his vital signs are diminished. Much like your prospects at this hospital. Sir, If you wish to continue to work here, you will take a six-month leave of absence, effective tomorrow. Do I make myself clear? Yes, sir. Dr. Talbot, what are you doing here? It's two o'clock in the morning. It's my last night. My last chance. Look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry about what happened before. I... Oh, I wasn't hurt. Just startled, mostly. You know Joe Slater's dying. I do. Well, then, we need to hurry. Ready? Ready. Good. Now turn the dial. There is left temple. Very slowly. No, go back. Up there. That's it. Doctor, are you all right? Oh, my. Yes. Is it Joe's dream? Yes. It's staggering. I never imagined such splendor. What is it like? Walls of living fire are blazing around me. I'm... I'm floating in the air. So... familiar. (laughs) Wide plains and graceful valleys. Glowing. Ethereal. A stupendous spectacle of ultimate... (sighs) Doctor? Can you hear me? Dr. Talbot! Oh, dear God. Dr. Talbot, how do you turn this thing off? What? I turned it off. I was afraid that... He's waking up. Joe? Look! His face! It's changed. There's color in his cheeks. The mouth tighter. His eyes. I swear, they're bluer than they were before. Yes, luminous. This, this is an active mind of the highest. Mr. Slater, you want to say something? Joe Slater is dead. He is better dead, for he was unfit to bear the active intellect of cosmic entity. He could not undergo the needed adjustments between ethereal life and planet life. Too much of an animal, too little of a man. Yet through him you have come to discover me. For the cosmic and planet souls rightly should never meet. He has been my torment and prison for 42 of your years. Who? What are you? I am like that which you yourself become in the freedom of dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light and have floated with you in the effulgent valleys. It is not permitted me to tell your waking earth self of your real self, but we are all roamers of vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year I may be dwelling in the dark Egypt which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of Tsanchan which is to come three thousand years hence. You and I have drifted to the worlds that reel about the Red Arcturus. But no... I don't... How little does the Earth self know of life and its extent? How little indeed ought it know for its own tranquility? But you'd been wronged somehow. 
You sought revenge. I cannot speak of the oppressor. You on earth have unwittingly felt its distant presence. You who without knowing idly gave to its blinking beacon the name of Algol, the demon star. It is to meet and conquer the oppressor that I have vainly striven for eons, held back by bodily encumbrances. Tonight I go as nemesis, bearing just and blazing cataclysmic vengeance. Watch me in the sky, close by the demon star. Demon star? Nurse, check his pulse. There's something wrong. Joe? I cannot speak longer, for the body of Joe Slater grows cold and rigid, and the coarse brains are ceasing to vibrate as I wish. You have been my friends in the cosmos, the only souls to sense and seek for me within the repellent form which lies in this cell. There's no pulse. My brother, wait. We shall meet again. Perhaps in the shining mists of Orion's sword. Perhaps in unremembered dreams tonight. Perhaps in some other form an eon hence when the solar system shall have been swept away. Dr. Talbot, he's gone. I'm so sorry. No, don't be sorry. Enter. Ah, Nurse Hunt, Mr. Harper, sit. I just wanted to follow up on the incident from last week. You took care of Dr. Talbot's... Contraption? Yes, sir. It's been scrapped, just as you ordered. Good. Now, I don't blame you two. You had to follow Dr. Talbot's orders, and I suppose you had no way of realizing just how much his own mental state had deteriorated. It can be tricky in a place like this. We all have to be on our guard. Where has he gone, Dr. Brainerd? Don't you worry, nurse. He's not coming back. Now, get back to your duties. Unless you feel you also need a... Vacation? Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Back to work, sir. Thank you, Doctor. That was close. Talbot wasn't insane. What? You have some kind of crush on him? You weren't there. I know what I heard and what I saw. Careful. Next to the demon star. Shut up about that. Look, did you see this? It was in the paper and everything. It was all real. Slater said we would see him near the Demon Star, and that very night we did. Well, maybe you think you did, but... No! I have the clipping. Listen to this. On February 22nd, a marvelous new star was discovered by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh. Not very far from Algol. No star had been visible at that point before. Within 24 hours, the stranger had become so bright that it outshone Capella. In a week or two, it had visibly faded, and in the course of a few months, it was hardly discernible with the naked eye. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little lives are rounded with a sleep. Our next tale brings us to the mad intersection of science and its application to the art of death. In The Electric Executioner, a tale by H.P. Lovecraft and Adolphe de Castro. 
Okay, so we've reviewed the judge's instructions on punishment testimony. Can we please take another vote? Those in favor of execution by electric chair? Aye. Those opposed? Me. Oh, Oh, for Pete's sake. You again? Sorry. What is the matter with you? He's guilty of sin. I agree. He's guilty. The law says he should pay with his life. Quite right. So why do you keep voting against it? (laughs) It's the chair. I can't send a man to the electric chair. Why not? Give us one good reason. Oh, I have my reason, but it's rather a long story. You may as well spill it, because we're stuck in here until we reach a unanimous verdict. Very well. Back in 89, I was a Pinkerton investigator here in San Francisco. I was summoned to the office of the president of the Tlaxcala Mining Company, Walter McComb. Smith, good. You're here. Shut the door behind you. How can I... We've got a problem at our mine number three down in the San Mateo Mountains in Mexico. On August 6th, the superintendent down there, Arthur Felden, stole all of the records and documentation for the site. Stock records, securities, permits, licenses, everything. I can see where that would be a problem. Uh, Any idea why? Who knows? Maybe the heat got to him. I need you on his tail before he gets too far. Yes, sir. Here's a dossier. It's everything we've got on him. My private rail car is waiting for you at the Southern Pacific Depot. Our man Jackson will meet your train in Puebla. Any questions? No, sir. Good. Time is of the essence, and cost is no object. Your office said you were the man for the job. Me and Smith and Wesson, sir. boy. Get going. The company's counting on you, son. I won't let you down, sir. I must say, this Pullman car's the way to travel. First class wherever we go, sir. Indeed. Uh, what did you say your name was? Obando. Let me know if there's anything I can do to make your journey more comfortable. How long till we make the border at El Paso, Obando? Tomorrow morning at half nine, senor. I've wired ahead. We'll connect to a private engine there to take us to Mexico City. Very good. Hey, Obando, you speak Spanish, right? Por supuesto, senor. Have a look at this map. Here, east of mine number three, Sierra de Malinche. What's that? The mountains are named for Malinche the woman who helped Cortez to conquer Mexico. It is a wild place, senor. The kind of place your ladron might go to hide from the law. Again? Damnation, we'll never make Mexico City in time at this rate. Obando! What the devil is happening out there? Senor... The engineer says the heat, it has burned up the bearings. He will have to drive more slowly until we get to Queretaro for repairs. Repairs? I can't wait for... Delays, delays, delays. Felden may as well keep everything. He'll be halfway to Madrid by the time I get down there. We have no choice, sir. If he drives fast, he says the bearings may give out completely. Uh, We can make it to Queretaro in just a few hours. Just a few hours? Is there any other way? I'm afraid not, senor. Great. The finest railway car in all the world and a useless engine. Senor, I have news. Is it safe to assume it's bad news? The parts are coming from Mexico City. Tomorrow. Tomorrow? In the late afternoon. Damn it, Obando, this man, Felden's on the loose. I know, senor. 
I have taken the liberty of booking you a seat on the night express train coming from Aquas Calientes, arriving here at one in the morning. I will stay with Mr. McCombs' private car and supervise the repairs. I have wired ahead to Senor Jackson at the mine. Will this please you, Senor? My God, good work, Obando. I should send McComb a wire to... I have already notified him, sir. Hmm. I'd be lost without you, Obando. Muchas gracias. De nada. Safe journey to you, senor. I hope you catch this man. Thank you, Obando. I'll commend your services to Mr. McComb. It's a European-style train with private compartments. It's this car. Compartment C7. Thanks again, Obando. Back on Dios, senor. All right, Felden. Now I'm on to you. <gasps> what was it? Was someone there? There was. The light from the oil lamp was so faint I didn't realize he was there at first. He was a man of unusual size, clad in rough, dark clothes. He was clutching a huge, battered, and bulging valise to his chest. His expression was perplexing. At first, he seemed confused, then delighted, and finally he pierced me with a malicious glare. My apologies. I didn't mean to wake you. But do you speak English? Would you care for a cigar? Cigarro? No? <laughs> All right, then. I settled into my own seat and pulled my hat down, pretending to doze. Hatred, fear, and triumph rippled across his face. I concluded the man must be some kind of lunatic, and ever so slowly I moved my hand towards the revolver in my pocket. As I drew it, he was on me in an instant, wrenching the gun away from me and putting it in his own pocket. He loomed over me for a moment like some giant. He then returned to his seat, smiled and unzipped his valise to reveal a strange object. What was it? I had never seen anything like it. It was like a cross between a catcher's mask and a diving helmet, with a thick cord extending back to the valise. He cradled the thing in his arms with obvious affection. You are fortunate, sir. Oh, and how's that? I shall use you first of all. You shall go into history as the first fruits of my remarkable invention. Vast sociological consequences. I shall let my light shine, as it were. I'm radiating all the time, but nobody knows it. You seem to have a marvelously fine instrument there. If I'm any judge, how'd you come to invent it? I contemplated the needs of the age and acted upon them. I realized, as no one else has yet realized, how imperative it is to remove everybody from the Earth before Quetzalcoatl comes back and realized also that it must be done elegantly. I hate butchery of any kind, and hanging is barbarously crude. Of course. You know, last year, the New York legislature voted to adopt electric execution for condemned men. But all the apparatus they have in mind is absurdly primitive. I was not aware of that. Oh, yes. I knew a better way, and I told them so. But they paid no attention to me. Oh, God, fools. As if I didn't know all there is to know about men and death. Electricity. I believe electrical devices might have a big role in homes of the future. <laughs> homes of the future? Where's your home? 
Rochester, New York. And Mexico, back and forth. You see, I like Mexicans. Real Mexicans. The, the ancient ones. Mm, yes. Ia! Ia! Huitzilopochtli! Nahualcatl! Seven. 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 Xochimilca! Chalca! Tepaneca! Acolhua! Tlahuica! Tlaxcalteca! Azteca! Ia! Ia! I have been to the seven caves of Chico Mostoc, but no one shall ever know. I tell you, only because you will never repeat it. Of course not. Huitzilopochtli is coming back. Of that, there can be no doubt. Damn them! Who? The Albany legislature, adopting the electric chair. <laughs> I tell you, it's a joke, sir. A joke. Ah, uh, indeed. I wager that little chair of theirs couldn't make a frog's legs dance. Damn them all to hell! You see how mine is superior? I alone mastered the secret of the storage battery. Electrodes touch the forehead and the base of the cerebellum, all that's necessary. I mean, you don't need to shoot a man through the body after you've plugged him through the brain, am I right? I'm sure your invention is much better, and they'll probably... Sure, are you? What do you care? The only good that will ever be in their chair was stolen from me. The ghost of Nezahualpili told me that on the sacred mountain. Now, if we could have done a test... Things would have been different. They would have seen its glory. My test on the burrow, oh, that was a good one, but a full slate of human tests. Are... Oh, by God, you should bring it to San Francisco. There's some politicians up there, just the right sort for... Uh... Are you mad? I can't go back to the States. Why not? Spies. They want to steal my invention. Still, a test on an American is the next step. You're the subject I've chosen. And you'll thank me for the honor in the other world. Just as the sacrificial victim thanks his priest for transferring him to eternal glory. Rise, and see what a genius of science hath wrought. Come thee from the frozen mountain peaks, great Istakoliukwi, with thy obsidian curl, and take this, thy offering. He was stark raving, I know. I tried to play along as best I could in the hope I could pull the signal cord. But he caught me. Uh, why didn't you attack him? He was twice my size. And he had my gun. Why didn't you try to escape? Jumping off an express train would have been just as fatal as staying. The only thing to do was play for time. So I used the ploy of needing to write out my will. That old chestnut? Well, did he fall for it? He did. So I wrote madly, dragging it out as long as I could, jotting down every bit of memorized gibberish that came to mind. Anything just to stall until we reached Mexico City. But he wasn't going to wait that long, was he? No. Finally, he demanded that I finish and hand over the will. He tucked it into his jacket. Then what did he do? He came at me, about to place the contraption on my head when an idea came to me. I offered to write a letter of introduction for him to my contacts in Sacramento and to send it along with a signed sketch of the device. You didn't. His hunger for fame wouldn't let him miss the opportunity. Soon, I'd written a lengthy letter describing the device. I told him I couldn't draw the contraption right unless he put it on. Oh, come on. Really? Did he? He put it on. The electrical wires going from his head back to some kind of battery in his valise. Oh, now I know how this story's going to end. You might be surprised. Are you done yet? Hurry. Almost there. Uh, look to your left a little. That's good enough. Give it to me. I'll post it to Sacramento. 
Now, it's time. You shall be my offering to Chalchiu Totulin. He came at me with murder in his eyes. I thought maybe I could confuse him by repeating his own gibberish. Ea, Ea, Quetzalcoatl, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. I see, I see. Witzli serpent eagle, hail. Yes, Mictlantecutli, great lord, a sign. A sign from within thy black cave. Ea, Cthulhuutl, take this sacrifice. Cthulhuutl. Ea, Rilia, Cthulhuutl, yig. The battery was yanked over the seat's edge by the maniac's crazed gesticulations and the switch triggered full current. I saw blinding blue sparks and smelled the nauseous odor of burning flesh. That was all my overwrought consciousness could bear, and I sank instantly into oblivion. Senor, Senor, can you hear me? I am a doctor. Yes, yes. You were on the floor of your compartment. Did you hit your head? What? No. Uh, where is he? Where, where did he go? Who, Senor? The man. The man who was in my compartment last night. The conductor found you here alone. Only you had a ticket for this compartment. No. No. Now, wait a minute. If this is one of those it-was-all-a-dream stories, I'm going to slug you. It's the truth. Had it been a dream, I didn't know. There was no trace of the man or his device. Maybe you're the one who's crazy. I was certainly anxious, and my nerves at the breaking point. So then what? I still had a job to do. I departed Mexico City on a narrow-gauge train that would take me up into the mountains. Before long, I arrived at the town of Puebla. Mr. Smith! Mr. Smith! Over here! Howie, I'm uh, Bart Jackson. How do you do? You have a pleasant trip down? No, actually. But I'm ready to get started. Have the police... Oh, no, we we got him. What? You got Felden? Yeah, he's dead. They found him this morning. Still had all the company papers right on him. So, good news, I guess. I mean, it's a shame you had to come all the way down here. Uh... I should take a look at the body. I'll have to file a report. Sure, sure. We got him up by the mine. Here, let me take your bag. Truck's just over this way. You knew Felden? Worked with him? Sure. Yeah, he was kind of a queer fella. Tell you the truth, I don't think he'll be missed much. Queer how? He was real sullen. Always brooding about some secret machine he was inventing. Didn't want to spend time with any of the Americans, but he got real chummy with some of the Indians. He'd go up with them into the hills. And it wasn't any kind of regular church meeting, if you get my drift. What was this machine? Heck if I know. He wouldn't say a thing about it around me. He was sure the company was trying to spy on him. And I know he made a bunch of orders for parts from laboratories and machine shops up in the States. I think he stole the papers as some kind of revenge scheme. (laughs) Crazy, right? All right, here we go. We got him in the shack, up above the Arastra there. Where'd they find the body? Some cave on the slope of the Sierra del Malinche. Oh, Hugo, right there. He, he's the one who found him. 
Oye, Hugo, aquí. Si, señor Jackson. Why don't you tell Mr. Smith here what you told me about finding the body? It was early this morning, before the sun came up. We hear these sounds. Kind of chanting. Chanting? What were the... The names of the old gods. Miklan Teukli. Tonatiu Metzli. Kathuhutl. Yarye. Few English words, too. But then we hear someone yell in pain. Well, that led us to the cave. Inside, there were old idols. The idols of the Aztecas and burned bones on candles. Very bad smell. And he was there? In the cave, Felden? Was he, senor? He had a kind of metal... Um, uh, thing on his head with a wire that went down to a bag. Oh, his head. <laughs> he was all burned up. I see. We put him on a stretcher and bring him here. Where are you going, Hugo? Uh, con permiso, senor. I do not want to see this again. You ready? Well, was it him? It was him. Felden had been the stranger on the train. Oh my god! What troubled me was what I found in his jacket pocket. The familiar sheets of paper I'd written out. His other pocket bulged with what could only be a revolver. What? Wait. So what really happened? I couldn't tell you. Felden was some kind of lunatic, crazed by some Aztec witch lore. The battery and the device seemed real enough. They were there, too. Some unknown and unholy forces had been at work. I think you're a liar, making this whole thing up. You know, if this is some scheme to get out of jury duty, you're too late. He wasn't crazy. You're crazy with a story like that. We have to tell the judge. Bailiff! Maybe it was astral projection. You were so focused on catching him that your mind raced ahead of your body. Was Felden really with me in the railway car? Was I somehow with him in that cave? I don't know. All I do know is that I have not and will never return to Mexico. And I cannot abide the notion of any man dying by electrocution. A shocking tale. But more mad science awaits in our next story. Insanity infiltrates the scientific fields of epidemiology and entomology in the steamy jungles of Africa in Wing Death, a tale by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. The Grand Hotel ABC is a four-story hotel that sits high on a bluff overlooking the mighty Congo River. On Sunday, January 24th, two men and a woman gathered in a room on its third floor. One was Kofi Adunga, proprietor of the hotel. Another was Constable Arnaud Bosch of the Belgian Congo's Force Publique. The third was Dr. Louise Pierce, an American medical specialist consulting the police. On the floor, surrounded by broken furniture and scattered items, was the body of a dead man. Please, I'll ask you not to touch anything until I complete an inventory of the room's contents. Let's see, a physician's case, pen, inkwell, and writing tablet, a bottle labeled H2O, HCL. Hydrochloric acid. Be careful. Hmm. Interesting. 
This is labeled MNO. Oxide of manganese. You're astute with your chemistry, Dr. Pierce. Part of my medical training. This bottle's unlabeled. A dead fly inside. Ah, ammonia. There's this. It looks like a leather journal. It appears to be well used. Does it say whose it is? It's inscribed as belonging to Thomas Slawenwhite, M.D. Hmm. Same names on the deceased's passport. But this man checked in as Frederick Ian Mason of Toronto, Canada. Curious. Did you know Dr. Slawenwhite, Dr. Pierce? Only by his poor reputation. I'd heard people were looking for him. Why a poor reputation? He had been a promising young epidemiologist, but there was an incident where he was alleged to have plagiarized another researcher's results. Did he write in this journal? He did. January 5th, 1929. I have now fully resolved to kill Dr. Henry Moore, and a recent incident has shown me how I shall do it. From now on, I shall follow a consistent line of action, hence the beginning of this journal. How obliging of him. Would that we could get all murderers to do that. Who is this Dr. Moore? Henry Sargent Moore, Ph.D. of Brooklyn, New York, professor of invertebrate biology in Columbia University. Something troubling you, Doctor? It's just that Dr. Moore died two months ago. He goes on. This journal should be read after my death with the purpose of making public my scheme of revenge and to ensure ensure I'm I'm justly justly credited credited with with its its brilliant brilliant execution. execution. That bastard Moore's accusations of plagiarism have so undermined my career that the best position I can find these days is my new post at the field hospital in Monganga, a beastly hole in equatorial Uganda. The place teems with venomous snakes and rare tropical diseases. Hello? Enter. I came to bid you welcome to Umgonga. I'm Gobo, the hospital functionary. If there's anything you need, please do not hesitate to let me know. Yes, yes, uh, thank you, Gobo. You settling in comfortably? Oh, I see you have brought books. Diptera of Central and Southern Africa. A reference work about flies by my colleague in America, Dr. Moore. Ah, that should be useful, sir. We have many flies. Was there something else? After you have finished your unpacking and settling in, sir, I wish to prevail upon you to see a man in the infirmary. He is very sick. Oh, yes, yes, of course, sir. Uh, Take me to him. Neural responses, lethargic, temperature 93.8 degrees, papular urticaria at right shoulder. That is the bite of the devil fly. It certainly looks like he's been bitten, and it probably was a fly. Bright red papule, purple ring surrounding it. Hmm. What sort of fly did you say it was? The devil fly. If it bites you, you will waste away. And then just as you die, the, the fly swoops in and flies away with your mind and soul. Despite Gobo's superstitions about a devilish fly, I must admit the insect bite seems to be the likely point of infection. The patient, a man called Mavana, is in grave condition. I'm puzzled by the germ at work here. 
Ah, Gobo, how's Mavana today? I fear he gets worse, Doctor. You see? We don't have many antitoxins here, so I'm afraid this is our best shot. Mavana, I'm going to give you an injection. Gobo, Tafadalin is Steady now. What's he saying? He fears his soul will be captured by the devil fly. Well, that's... That's between him and his priest. Or what have you. I'll do the best I can. Hello? What is it, Gobo? Uh, Sir, I would like to make the introduction to you of a very important visitor today. May I introduce... Basilio Okello. How do you do? He was the doctor for the whole region. He helped the English build the clinic here in Mgonga. Really? Fascinating. Uh, won't you come in? A pleasure to meet your acquaintance, doctor. I told him of your efforts to treat Mevana for the bite of the devil fly. Did you now? Some 30 years ago, there was an epidemic here. Thousands died, and it was traced to the bite of a rare fly. I discovered a treatment. Well... You've got my attention now. Uh, You wouldn't know the species of the fly, would you? The Europeans called it Glossana papalis, a very hearty cousin of the tsetse fly. You don't say. It feeds on the blood of crocodiles and large mammals. It turns out if these animals carried trypanosomiasis, the fly would acquire it. Sleeping sickness. Exactly. But in these flies, the germ would develop an acute effectivity after an incubation period of 31 days. After that, it was sure death for anyone or anything it would bite. Good Lord. And there was no treatment at all? Some of our traditional folk remedies could ease the suffering. But I found also if I gave an injection of triposamite soon enough... Of course, an arsenic compound. Uh, But I must warn you, sir. The folk remedies are essential to the treatment for otherwise... Of of course, uh, of course. Uh, Well, uh... Well, as much as I'd love to stay and chat, I'm afraid my schedule's quite full today. So thank you for coming by, Mr. Uh... Okello. Dr. Okello. My idea to use triparsamide worked. Mavana's recovering and utterly indebted to me. He was convinced he was going to end up as a fly. <laughs> you know, he's agreed to take me into the bush to the place where the flies live. If I can capture some specimens, I think I have the perfect plan to exact my revenge on Dr. Moore. Come, Doctor, this way. My God, what is that thing, Mavana? It is the Kumbu Kumbu, a memory stone. But who could have erected such a thing here? Look, this looks like carving. They say these were made by old gods, the fishers of men, evil gods, Lulu and Sadogwa, from long ago. Just ahead is Lake Mlolo. Its shore is where the fly bite me. Success! Using traps baited with infected crocodile meat, I captured a number of the flies. I'll send them to Moore, he'll study them, one will bite him, and nature will take its course. Oh, vengeance is sweet! (laughs) Uh, Now, how to modify them so Moore won't recognize the species? (laughs) Yes, yes, they're thriving! Good news, Doctor! 
Trypanosoma gambiensis. My germs. They're thriving here in the test tubes. Oh, that is good news. And my ultraviolet incubator has accelerated the fly's breeding cycle. The hybrids I made by breeding local flies with ones brought back from Lake Mololo are fertile. <laughs> Very good. Hey, and this will help you treat your patients? What? No. No, this is clearly beyond your understanding, Gobo. Get out. Yes, sir. I apologize again for the boy, Bata, who spilled the coffee on you this morning. I can give him the boot if it is your wish. Yes, do. He's useless. Tell him to... No. Never mind. Don't tell him anything. <laughs> I'll take care of Bata. Are you sure, sir? Yes. <laughs> uh, Gobo, make sure the screens on the breakfast porch are all shut tight before morning. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Slauenwhite, sir. Your newspaper. Thank you, Batter. Would you fetch my coffee, please? Here you are. They say it will be hot today. You're wearing a high collar. Should I fetch you a lighter shirt? <laughs> no, no. I'm perfectly dressed for the occasion. Bring me toast. Uh, right away, sir. Ah, and the uh, marmalade, please, Batter. Right away, sir. Everything all right there? Uh, yes. A fly bit me. Oh, dear. Come by the infirmary later and I'll apply some iodine. Uh, thank you, sir. You're very kind. <laughs> My experiment is coming along splendidly. Bata's infection has taken hold. I'm treating him with placebo so I can determine just how long it takes the pathogen to kill its host. Sir. What do you want, Gobo? Forgive my saying, sir, but your hands, they are blue. Yes, it's a dye for the hybrid's wings. You'll think they're a new species for sure. Oh, I wish to let you know that we lost Bata this morning. Ah, three months and eight days. His suffering is at an end. I've notified his family. Have you? Good, good. Bata, he was young and fit, but with an old codger like Moore, I'm sure it will be even faster. Time has come. I've prepared my disguise and arranged a holiday from work here in Mongonga. I'll make the journey to Okala and ship my virulent blue-tinted hybrids to Moor from there. <laughs> There's no way they'll ever be traced back to me. Good day, sir. I need to ship this parcel to the United States of America. It is uh, buzzing, sir. <laughs> yes, entomological specimens. I'm sending them to a brother scientist there. They're very secure and completely harmless. Oh, very good, Mr. Uh, Neville Wayland Hall. That's right. The plan went off without a hitch. The false beard worked perfectly. I have no regrets. After what he did to me, he deserves this and more. Nothing to do now but wait for news of more and his demise. He is worse than a monster. Some kind of demon, this man. It worked, you know. What? How do you know? I read about it in the Journal of Infectious Disease. Dr. Moore received blue-winged flies from Africa and was much puzzled by them. He was bitten by one and contracted a lingering and painful disease with no known treatment. The flies turned out to be a 
Tsitsipal palace hybrid with artificially colored wings. There was an international search for this Neville Wayland Hall, and some suspected Slough and White might have been involved. A hospital's functionaire, Mr. Gobo, brought the doctor's dubious practices to the attention of the authorities in Uganda, and the British have been looking for him. He must have cooked up this new Canadian identity and fled here to the Congo. Moore died two months ago, and clearly this man was his killer. But what killed him? Was he bitten by the fly? He was. But that's not what killed him. It was the chlorine gas. Is that what I'm smelling? Yes. Look at his eyes. Red, watery, the purple tinge to the skin, and he clearly coughed blood into that handkerchief. Was it suicide? No. He was using the handkerchief to cover his mouth and nose. He must have thought he could protect himself with it. I don't understand. Why would he... He was trying to kill the fly. Look at this room. Everything smashed up. Titi flies are very hard to kill. That's why he cooked up the chlorine. He had all the chemicals he needed in his medical bag. Then how did the fly end up in the ammonia bottle? Such a narrow neck. It seems unlikely it fell in. I don't know. Uh, Maybe it... To protect itself. Ammonia can neutralize chlorine. It knew. What? What do you mean, it knew? It was just a fly. No, it wasn't. Look up, gentlemen. There, on the ceiling. Good God. That's... Ink tracks. Writing. But what could have... I I mean, how? It's a 12-foot ceiling. The fly from the open inkwell. A devil fly. My God, he's right. But but no, it cannot be. It's not possible. You see it for yourself, Inspector. It can't be. Science tells us, doesn't it, Doctor? Science tells us a great many things, Inspector. But I fear it cannot penetrate all the mysteries of this world. The writing. I can't make it out. What's it say? Tell them I was... Dr. Henry Moore. Ooh, positively ghastly. For our fourth and final act, we find ourselves at the annual meeting of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, where a crowd is gathering to hear a very special presentation. Modern science and advanced electrical technology reveal the unseen and the insane in H.P. Lovecraft's From Beyond. Gentlemen! Uh, uh, Gentlemen, please. It is time. Gentlemen and ladies, please. Take your seats for the lecture and demonstration. It is clear from this large crowd that our next speaker requires perhaps uh, not much introduction. You have all no doubt read about his unbelievable experience in the newspapers. And like me, you have come to hear the story from the man himself. I met him earlier this week, and it is quite a tale. It is my pleasure to present to you Theodore Waite.
to favor us with his talk. Ted? Thank you, Professor Tesla. It's a, it's a great honor to stand on the same stage as you. Gentlemen and ladies, thank you for permitting me to address you this evening. As Professor Tesla suggested, the newspaper accounts of my friend Crawford Tillinghast and of what passed between us that last fateful night have been sensational, but not terribly accurate. They focused on the more lurid details, his raging moods and the, the mysterious sounds heard emanating from his house. But it is his amazing ideas that I want to talk to you about tonight. And it's true that my friend was obsessed with his work. His aspect genuinely shocked me when I returned to his house that fateful night. That he should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. I mean, these things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair, if he fail in his quest, and terrors unutterable if he succeed. A fact I imagine this audience knows only too well. Artillingast <laughs> <laughs> had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew that he was the prey of success. I didn't want to believe it at first. For example, compared to the way a fly sees, we are utterly blind. Nonsense. We, we have microscopes, telescopes, What and... do we know of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few. We see things only as we are constructed to see them and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses, we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, Yet other beings with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now... I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I'm trying to be serious here, Crawford. You think I'm joking? Within 24 hours, that machine there will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion, peer to the bottom of creation. <laughs> well, you're going to wake up dormant parts of the brain? Oh, come now, man. <laughs> this isn't some story in a pulp magazine. You don't believe me? Well, get out. What? I said get out. Now, I'll not have some... Mocking, sniveling naysayer, unwilling to perceive the vastness of the universe, inhibiting my discoveries. Crawford. Out! Now! I did as he commanded and left. But I kept in touch with his faithful servant, Gregory, who informed me that Tillinghast all but sealed himself in his attic laboratory, eating little, working round the clock, Ten weeks later, I received a note from Tillinghast in a hand I barely recognized. Just what he now wished of me 
I could only guess. Wait, it's you. Good. Enter. Crawford, you don't look... Are you quite well? Where's Gregory? The servants all left three days ago. Even Gregory? He seemed about as dependable a fellow as you could... Gone. Follow me. Mind the stairs. What's with the candle? Is the electricity turned off on purpose? Uh, It would be too much. I would not dare. We entered his laboratory in the attic, and I saw his bizarre electrical machine glowing with a sickly violet luminosity. Come, this way. Is that some kind of battery there to keep the electricity going? Uh, The glow's permanent, and it's not electrical. Not in any sense that you could understand. (laughs) I see. Come, sit in the chair. As Tillinghast made adjustments to his device, the luminosity increased, waned again, then assumed a pale, outre color, or blend of colors which I could neither place nor describe. Do you know what that is? That is ultraviolet. <laughs> you thought ultraviolet was invisible, and so it is. You can see that and many other invisible things now. I thought... Listen to me. The waves from that thing are waking a thousand sleeping senses in us. Senses which we inherit from eons of evolution. I have seen truth, and I intend to show it to you. Blow out that candle. Your existing sense organs... Ears first, I think, will pick up many of the impressions, for they are closely connected with the dormant organs. Then there will be others. You have heard of the pineal gland? Yes, it's in the brain, isn't it? The epithalamus. <laughs> it's the great sense organ of organs I have found out. It is akin to sight in the end, and transmits visual pictures to the brain. That's how you'll perceive most of the evidence... From beyond. I looked about the immense attic room, dimly lit by rays which the everyday eye cannot see. The far corners were all shadows, and the whole place took on a hazy unreality. In the silence, I fancied myself in some vast temple of long dead gods. Some vague edifice of black stone columns reaching up to a height beyond the range of my vision. The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception. That of utter, absolute solitude in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void and nothing more. Afraid, I drew my revolver. Yes. Gentlemen and ladies, it's true. (laughs) Having been held up one night in East Providence, I carry a pistol after dark. Foolish, perhaps, but it makes me feel better. The sound softly glided into existence. It was faint, subtly vibrant, 
and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. I felt like one feels when accidentally scratching ground glass. Simultaneously, there developed a cold draft which swept past me from the direction of the distant sound. As I waited, I perceived that both sound and wind were increasing. The effect being to give me an odd notion of myself as tied to a pair of rails in the path of a gigantic approaching locomotive. Crawford, what is that? No. It's gone now. I saw only the man, the glowing machine, and the dim attic. Tillinghast grinned repulsively at my revolver, and from his expression I was sure he had seen and heard as much as I, if not a great deal more. I heard. No, I felt Don't it. move. In these rays, we are able to be seen as well as to see. Be seen? By whom? I told you the servants left, but I didn't tell you how. It was that thick-witted housekeeper. She turned on the lights downstairs after I had warned her not to, and the wires picked up sympathetic vibrations. It must have been frightful. I could hear the screams up here in spite of all I was seeing and hearing from another direction. It was rather awful to find those empty heaps of clothes around the house later. Empty heaps of clothes? You mean... <laughs> Mrs. Updike's clothes were close to the front hall switch. That's how I know she did it. It got them all. But so long as we don't move, we're fairly safe. We're dealing with a hideous world in which we are practically helpless. Keep still! The combined shock of this revelation and of Tillinghast's abrupt command froze me. They're coming. From beyond. I was now in a vortex of sound and motion, with confused pictures before my eyes. I saw the blurred outlines of the room, but from some point in space there seemed to be pouring a seething column of unrecognizable shapes and clouds penetrating the solid roof at a point ahead and to the right of me. Then I glimpsed the temple-like effect again. But this time, the pillars reached up into an aerial ocean of light, which sent down one blinding beam along the path of the cloudy column I had seen before. It was like being in a kaleidoscope, a jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentified sense impressions. I felt that I was about to dissolve into... I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of night sky filled with shining, revolving spheres. Huge, animate things brushed past me and walked or drifted through my supposedly solid body. And I thought I saw Tillinghast look at them as though his better-trained senses saw them through the preternatural eye of his pineal gland. I saw the attic laboratory, the electrical machine, and Tillinghast opposite me. But also so much more. Of all the space unoccupied by familiar material objects, not one particle was vacant. Indescribable shapes, both alive and otherwise, were mixed in disgusting disarray. Whole worlds of alien, unknown entities. Living things? What do you mean? Oh, yes. Foremost among them were great, inky, jellyish monstrosities, which flabbily quivered in harmony with the vibrations from the machine. They were present in loathsome profusion, and I saw, to my horror, that they overlapped, that 
They were semi-fluid and capable of passing through one another and through what we know as solids. They were never still, but floated about with some malignant purpose. They would devour one another, the attacker launching itself at its victim and instantaneously obliterating the latter from sight. It dawned on me what had obliterated the unfortunate servants. You see them? You see them! You see the things that float and flop about you and through you every moment of your life? You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky? Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown you worlds that no other living men have seen? I heard him scream through the chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame and they glared at me what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Idiots, they are harmless. <laughs> but the servants are gone, aren't they? It's all your fault. Mine? How did I... You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You were afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward. But now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? <laughs> Don't know, huh? You'll know soon enough, Crawford. Please, look at me. Listen to what I say. Do you suppose there are really any such things as time or magnitude, form or matter? Look, I'm sorry, I didn't... I tell you, I have struck depths that your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Things are hunting me now. The things that devour and dissolve, but I know how to elude them. It is you they will get as they got the servants. That's enough. Stirring, dear sir. I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still. Saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you moved, they'd have had you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. The sight of them made the poor devil scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetic standards are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you, but I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. You are not curious. No, I don't want to see them! Turn it off! I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling, eh? Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate things I have discovered. Why don't you move, then? Don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. Look! Look, damn you! Look! Just over your left shoulder! No! This is madness. The police found us there, Tillingas dead and me unconscious. They released me a few hours later, once they discovered it was apoplexy which had finished Tillingas, and saw that my shot had been directed at the machine, which now lay shattered on the laboratory floor. In the end... Tillingast could not handle his own discovery. But where he failed, I shall succeed. I studied his machine, and I have perfected it. Mr. Stage Manager, dim the lights. 
With Professor Tesla's help, I have prepared a demonstration for you tonight. We present the weight Tillinghast Resonator. Professor. Now, please, gentlemen and ladies, it is very important that you sit still. Very still. You've been listening to Mad Science, a special anthology episode of Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Brought to you by our sponsor, Revigator Water Coolers. They're lined with radium to make sure every drop is pure and healthful. Protect your family from impurities. Buy a Revigator today. I'm Lester Mayhew. Until next week, this is Dark Adventure Radio Theater reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look. And save the last bullet for yourself. Mad Science was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman and based on Beyond the Wall of Sleep and From Beyond by H.P. Lovecraft and The Electric Executioner by H.P. Lovecraft and Adolfo Castro and Winged Death by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald. Original music by Reaper Clark. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Ken Clement, Michael Feldman, Matt Foyer, Andrew Lehman, Dick Lazardo, Jacob Lyle, Rosny Mogger, Johnny McKenna, William C. Stevens, Kevin Stidham, Josh Temke, and Time Winters. Tune in next week for The Tale of Two Talking Tattoos, a posthumous collaboration by Mason Farley and August Derleth. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 88. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.